Spencer Martin gets another start in net as the Canucks welcome the Kraken to town. It is Canucks Hour here on Sportsnet 650, your home of the Canucks on a game day. Final three games of the year, one of the final two games at Rogers Arena on the season for the Canucks. Uh, I'm Jamie Dodd. My co-host is Canucks insider Thomas Durant, who also covers the team at The Athletic. Canucks Hour brought to you by Avenue Machinery. Being a champion takes foresight. Build your company to win for years to come with fuel-efficient and reliable Kubota skid steers, excavators, and loaders from Avenue Machinery. Visit avenuemachinery.ca. Lots going on, actually, in this one tonight, Drancer. We We talked at length yesterday about the incredibly thin, narrow path to the playoffs that does technically still exist for the Vancouver Canucks. Of course, that depends on them winning tonight, in addition to a whole host of other things going right (laughs) for them. But even beyond that, all of a sudden, first of all, it's the final meeting of the season between the Canucks and uh, their would-be rival, the Seattle Kraken. And then this morning, the news broke that the Canucks had recalled goalie Archer Silovs from Abbotsford on an emergency basis. Bruce Boudreaux confirmed that Demko is injured. He called it day-to-day. Spencer Martin will start tonight and adds just another really fascinating wrinkle to this game at Rogers Arena tonight. It does. I mean, it adds a fascinating wrinkle for the balance of this Canucks season. Look, yep. Thatcher Demko has been this team's MVP. He's been their best player. And I think it's fair to say, particularly in the latter stages of the season after Halak had a couple of tough starts back-to-back, um, you know, I, I think Demko's probably been overused. I don't think it's unfair to suggest that. I, I, it's not the first time. It's not revisionist history either to sort of note this. We've talked about it at length. We talked about it at length last week when the subject of Demko playing both legs of the back-to-back against, um, you know, Ottawa and, and Dallas came up. You know, he's third among NHL goaltenders in games played this season he's had to come in in relief on three occasions which is far from optimal Mm -hmm. um you know he's faced the third most shots on the season like his workload's been massive for a guy who's never been a workhorse starter before and considering his importance to this team going forward his importance to this franchise arguably he's this franchise's franchise player at this point i'm gonna see how many more times i can say franchise in a sentence (laughs) in a in a few minutes the fact that the Canucks' playoff odds never really peaked above 30%, you know, and, and Demko was kind of rode into the ground and is now hurt. And and honestly, if we're being honest, right, since that Toronto game on that East Coast trip, right, remember he, he looked to be laboring a little bit um, at, during that game, still played incredibly as if they had that goal line stand where the Leafs turned it on. Since then, I think we've seen, on occasion, Demko look, you know, a little bit off like just limping off the ice after a period or or something like that uh certainly he started to do a fair bit less media which would suggest that there's been you know some some treatment going on uh being a goaltender is really hard i I worked with roberto luongo his last season in the nhl and he was 39 and (laughs) had had a massive uh like extremely arduous hip surgery a couple years prior took him like two and a half hours just to get ready for this game like at this point you know, in, in Demko's case, for example, he had hip impingement surgery as a teenager, almost like a pitcher would get Tommy John, right, to, to sort of for preventative uh, as a, reasons. Yeah, as a proactive as measure. As a proactive almost. measure to, you know, avoid injury later on in his career. Um, it is a extraordinarily demanding physical activity. It's cruel to the hips and the body to, to play 
you know, what's effectively a martial art in the middle of a high-speed sport over 65, 60-plus games. And, you know, Demko never done it before. I think he's held up remarkably well, considering. He's obviously put in a stellar performance. He's emerged as sort of a consensus pick among the top five starters in this league. Incredible for a 26-year-old player. But, you know, finding ways to protect him next season finding ways to avoid this is essential because can you imagine if the Canucks had four more points? Oof. Can you imagine if the Canucks had four more points and the next three really mattered and this was where we were at today with Halak likely done for the season based on Boudreaux's suggestion that he wouldn't be an option this week or, uh, you know, Boudreaux didn't say that he for sure wouldn't but didn't expect him to be. Uh, Demko, they're calling it day-to-day, but I think our, our expectation at this juncture would be that um, you know, we, we're unlikely to it, see him. It feels like it would be a surprise if we it saw him again this season. It would absolutely be a surprise if we saw him this season. So can you imagine, though, if this team had four more points in the standings and these next three games mattered and they were shaping up for a series against Colorado or Ed, or Connor McDavid, I mean, this would be catastrophic. Catastrophic. And, and speaks to one thing that I just want to bring up quickly, which is throughout this season we've talked a lot about the construction issues of this roster. And there's been pushback, particularly from our listeners and in the 650-650 inbox, uh, the sponsored by Dunbar Lumber, uh, that, you know, if this team was winning this way, how could they possibly be poorly constructed? Well, look at the Halak situation. Look at the Demko situation. Look at the situation the team now finds itself in late in the year where Demko overused you know, maybe it's a lower body injury from being run into the ground or else it's a shoulder injury from holding up the world, Um, you know, is in this spot. They overused him. They didn't trust their backup for like a quarter plus of the season, despite the fact that he was good in all other starts. And for all of that, you're going to have a $1.25 million bonus overage attached to a lock steal. Like, this and, is what we're talking and about. And you're still paying the Braden Holpe buyout. And, and it actually goes paying, up significantly right. and going Holpe, into next year. And Holpe would have been a better backup than than Hawk based on his numbers this season. So, you know, you get through it all, and it's like you're, you're the cap math, the Demco usage, like none of it makes sense. None of it is well-ordered. It's all disorderly, in fact. It's not well-constructed. This is the type of situation where it becomes plain, inarguable. And it's, it goes beyond wins and losses. It's just about you know, options and costs and impact. And, you know, the backup goalie situation, the, the situation the Canucks find itself in, the long tail of it too, like, you know, Spencer Martin's going to start tonight. And the Canucks really need him, I think, to play well. They've signed him to a two-year one-way deal. They need to go cheap in the backup position because they've got $3.1 million remaining in dead money on the books next season uh, being paid to Halak and Holtby. Right, backups, backups past. Neither of whom has given them above average save percentage performance, and so they have to go cheap with Spencer Martin. They're clearly going to need him to play twenty plus games next year. Clearly, like yes. this, this situation illustrates it. Could you imagine if the stakes were high tonight? You know, it would be again like that would be not season ending. But if if this Canucks team had four more points, we'd be like, oh boy, they're in tough now, or. Oh, even if they sneak in, they're going to be in tough against one of the best offensive teams in hockey. Um, you know, you need to be able to play Spencer Martin. So all of a sudden, this week becomes really tough to navigate. You've got three and four, right? You've got an Abbotsford Canucks team that's tied with Bakersfield and playing them tonight. Mike DiPietro looks poised to get that start since he's the only goalie, um, you know, really there on the yes. farm. Um, but, like, you're tied in points and you're in fourth. And so the swing of this game tonight... 
Uh, and and of the next two, the two remaining on the Abbotsford Connect schedule could be the difference between three playoff home dates and zero, right? So you need to manage that. Three and four, you can't start Spencer Martin three and four, surely, surely. So you're going to need Silovs or, or DiPietro to give you one game. You've certainly got an Edmonton Oilers team that might be hungry to feed McDavid in the last game of the season, a home road back-to-back that's you know really going to be very difficult for this Canucks team to navigate. You certainly don't want to go into the offseason with any doubt in your mind as to Spencer Martin's ability to be that 20-game backup option for this team. So, I mean, what do you do? I think you go Martin, Martin, DiPietro. That, yeah. I mean, I know that this organization specializes in and, throwing and, Michael and hanging Michael DiPietro out to drive. But I don't know. I don't know what other option you have based on the commitment you've made to Spencer Martin and the importance of spelling Demko far better next year than they did this year. Like, I, I mean, that's the play. I think that's clearly the play. Uh, even though you know, I'm sure Ian Clark will be pushing for Arthur Silovs, his star pupil, to to maybe get a game. Uh, you know, I don't. I don't want to put a young goaltender who I've got really high hopes for, like Silovs. Uh, into that game against the Oilers. And I don't want to put the guy I need to feel really confident in next season playing 2022 ba- games. In a back-to-back situation. In a back-to-back situation against the Oilers. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, with playing behind one team that's unlikely to have any stakes and another that's, like, trying to feed their best player. I mean, that's a, that's a disaster waiting to happen. So, you know, the Canucks are in tough this week now uh, as a result of the Demko injury. And, and hopefully we'll get a, a more lengthy update, more than day-to-day. In, in the days ahead. Hopefully it's not something that impinges on Demko's ability to have a healthy summer, uh, rest and recuperate, get ready to be this stud netminder again for this club next season because we've seen it. Like, this team relies on Demko so, so much, and I suspect we're about to see that illustrated in a major way this week. And there really is no – there's no easy scenario to get somebody other than Spencer Martin a game, right? Because that other game against L.A., of course, is your final home game of the season, and you don't want to put uh, a young, unprepared, potentially goalie in that situation either where you're trying to kind of send your fans home on a really positive note. That's putting too many expectations or, or too much pressure on Artur Silas for what would he be his first NHL start, remember right like that's a really tough situation to put him in as well as is the game against Edmonton and then this game tonight you're still technically alive there's still technically stakes to this game so there's no easy way to navigate this now that Thatcher Demko is day-to-day and and Again, as we said, it was, we we, it, we suspect and have cause to suspect yeah. that that is not a or that that is a generous description. Yeah, and we also had a text came in that said uh, from Dan. It says that I missed something. Is Halak injured? Halak is still dealing with the injury that he sustained that he the sta- Senators yeah, game against Ottawa. So and he's not an option either. Boudreau, I asked Boudreau about it this morning. Boudreau said, you know, I haven't talked to the team doctor, so I want to caption this that this isn't an official update. But he didn't skate today, and he doesn't expect him to be an yeah. option this week. Again, that's a expectations thing from Boudreau, who always answers us very frankly yeah. as opposed to a official a, an official medical update team. yeah um but you know even if Halak plays right you've got uh then you've got cap ramifications for next season like yeah. there are no good options here for this team at this point although you know i think martin playing two games down this in the last three that i like it's just the throwing a kid into that game against the oilers or throwing martin into that, that game against like i'm looking at that game as a real um, issue in terms of a, a, a from a confidence ruining standpoint, like I just worry that you're going to see, especially if Jonathan Huberto goes off and has like a three or four point game in the next week, which you know he's Jonathan Huberto, he's liable to do. Yeah. Um. You know, I I don't want to see a goaltender put into the position that 
you know, the the Flames put whatever goaltender who got, you know, the touch pass between the legs finish for Daniel <laughs> Sedin back in 2011, right? Like, I don't want to see that happen considering where the Canucks are at in this season. Well, I don't think you can put Silovs in that game for his first NHL start. No. I, I don't think there's any way you can no. do that. Uh, and I don't think it makes sense to give him the last home game either. So it might have to be DiPietro just for, for no other reason than, hey, hey, kid, you've been through this before, so I guess we'll do it to you oh. again. And that, that's not an ideal situation, obviously, either. But The, the DiPietro thing, you know, the, the, the obviously his first NHL start Oof. was a disaster. And I thought he played totally well for them when he, when he played against the Sharks this season. It was a loss, but it wasn't on him, in my view. Um, the, the, the way that they handled his development in 2021, this was a Team Canada World Junior Championship starter, right? This was a highly prized prospect. I know he was picked in the third round, but that's high for a goalie. For a goalie, yeah. And what's happened to him since is a, a, atrocious, especially for an organization that otherwise has done a really good job of developing netminders, uh, you know, you, you do sort of wonder if this is coming to a head. DiPietro can't be happy with this situation. Uh, clearly, clearly the club, um, you know, clearly the club is elected. They've made a choice with Martin. Uh, so I do think there's a qu- big question regarding DiPietro that has to be answered at some point this offseason. Uh, and so the uh, the other talk just beyond you know, what, how they handle the final three games here in, in the crease, and also you start to look ahead to next year and you start to think about how can they avoid a repeat of this scenario? Because as you said, if the Canucks were just a little bit farther ahead in the standings, this would have major, major implications potentially for trying to nail down a playoff spot and potentially for how you can perform uh, in the playoffs. And look, this iteration, as long as, as long as Thatcher Demko is here, he's going to be a major part of what drives this team's success. And if they are in the playoff hunt next year, they're going to need Thatcher Demko to be as close to his peak level of performance as possible at the end of the year and potentially going in to the playoffs. Because the whole idea, Drancer, and I, I'm not sure if it, this front office really subscribes to this idea, but the whole idea of, hey, win, get in and anything can happen, right? Get in, get into the playoffs and anything can happen. Well, that's certainly, to the extent that's true at all, it's certainly only true uh, if you're the Canucks, if you have Thatcher Demko operating uh, near the peak of his ability. So you've got to make sure you can get to the end of the season, not just next year, but whenever Thatcher Demko is here, for as long as he's here, you have to make sure you can get him to the end of the season still playing really well. And I think it's natural to look at, okay, how do you solve that puzzle and put the lion's share of responsibility for doing that on Spencer Martin. And obviously there's some truth to that, right? You need to get a better performance from your backup goal. You need to have, you know, a certain amount of reliability and trust in your backup to play 20 to 25 games for you. But the other element that I look at is you also have to improve the team in front of Thatcher Demko so that you're not terrified of playing your backup, right? So that you still think you can go win a game, even if you don't have Thatcher Demko out there, even if you accept the downgrade of starting Spencer Martin, that you're not basically looking at as, oh boy, I don't know what we're going to get. And and the way you do that is (laughs) one, it's one by having a decent backup, but it's also by improving the team such that it's not a death sentence for an individual game if you get substandard goaling. That's the other, or goaltending, that's the other big part of it. It's about Spencer Martin, yes, but it's also about improving the team everywhere else on the ice to give your, your yourself a better shot at winning games. Goal, playing goal in the NHL is extraordinarily physically demanding. Injuries happen. A lot. A lot to goaltenders. Carolina's dealing with it right now. There were months of this season, months, Jamie, where teams like Toronto and Florida 
uh, those teams in particular, uh, not just because I like to reference them, <laughs> but this is just a fact of the matter, were last in the NHL in save percentage. Last. And they played at a 100-plus point pace <laughs> in those games. The Carolina Hurricanes still ticking without Freddie Anderson, mm-hmm. who's been phenomenal for them this year. The, the, you, you need to be able to win without your goalie. You do. Like, I don't know what else to say. The elite teams do it. They do. And this is another reason why I think you have to regard with some, and I don't want to use the word skepticism, that's wrong, but you have to weight appropriately what the Canucks have accomplished with the best five-on-five goaltending in the NHL a little bit differently, uh, despite the success of their record, because you can't rely on getting that level of performance for health reasons, for sustainability reasons, because no team repeats as the best five-on-five save percentage team in the NHL year over year. You cannot rely on it. You need to be able to luck-proof your team. You need to be able to win when things go badly. Um, you need to be able to win the 5-4 game when your goalie has an off night. And this team hasn't done that, hasn't been able to do that, uh, at least not consistently. Not consistently. And you you so, can go through and find individual games, but we all know how key Thatcher Demko and his performance has been to this team, picking up results. 100%. Yeah. And so, you know, you need to be careful about how you parse this, about what you buy into, about what you see as this team's true talent level. Um, You know, the reliance on Demko for me is a positive and a negative. It's a double-edged sword here, right? The positive is is that you've got this great young starter to build around. That's a huge positive, and that will matter a ton, particularly because he's locked up for the next four years at a a team-friendly clip. Mm -hmm. But it's also a challenge, a challenge to the organization to go about and build the type of team capable of hanging with the best teams in the league, legitimately hanging with them, not stealing games, not taking Vegas to seven games in a series in which you get outshot by 110, but actually hanging with the best teams. You know, build the team that Demko is a feature of as opposed to the reason you're winning. That's the challenge for Rutherford and company, I think, from their commentary. Since they since they took over in early December, they know that they have a sense of that. Thank goodness, because you know goaltending is a heck of a drug. It can it can disguise a lot of flaws. It has for this club, and then all of a sudden, Demko's out, and you think, oh boy, what if they had four more points? Like, yeah. What if they'd just beaten, you know, um, Detroit and Buffalo at home on that road trip, and these games really mattered? You know, they they would be up a creek. They would be up a creek, and that and that's not a good place to be at this point in time in the year. And the other thing is, if you have that sort of team in front of your goalie, and you're able to bank results early in the season, right? So you're not living on the bubble. You're not trying to make up a huge deficit in the standings. Because once you get in that situation, there's this kind of natural sense of urgency that sets in, and you feel like you have to run your number one goalie out there so often because... Uh, one, as we've seen this year, Drancer, once you're down, and the Canucks dug themselves a massive hole this year, but even once you're down just a little bit in the standings, every loss, every loss feels so massive. And the temptation to just ride your workhorse goalie becomes so overwhelming. But if you have a team that gets off to a decent start and you're not kind of living and dying with every loss from January 1st on, it gives you that freedom and it gives you that flexibility uh, to be a bit more comfortable playing your backup, even if you know it is a substantial downgrade from the starter to the backup. I wanted to uh, read this one as well from Marcus and Gibsons. He says, what if the Martin experience doesn't go so well this time? Will management gamble on another free agent vet again for cheaper? And the interesting thing with the Spencer Martin 
deal is it is a one-way deal, but it's also the uh, the one uh, below the threshold where you can bury the cap hit in the minors, in the AHL, if you need to go that way. So I wouldn't be too surprised, Drancer, to see the team try to sign another goalie to that sort of deal, right, with a, a, a cap hit that can be buried in the minors and turn it into a bit of a competition between Spencer Martin and goalie X, right, the kind of third-slash-fourth goalie profile uh, vet to at least bring them into the mix because I would be as you would be really I don't think that's going to happen all right I, I mean they might go get an uh, an AHL vet to to platoon with uh, with um, one of Silovs or DiPietro or perhaps DiPietro is that AHL vet um, you know but I I think this club's committed to Martin that is a that is a two year one way deal that's NHL money like. Non-cap spending has never been something, or not never, but of late, non-cap yes. spending is something that this team hasn't necessarily well, leaned into. That's the thing that this the path I'm suggesting really comes down to the willingness of ownership to pay NHL money for a goalie who ends up in the AHL, right? Right. And, and if there if that's there's no appetite for that, then yeah, you're not going to see would that. Be, I would be very surprised. So I, I think I think Spencer Martin has earned in the organization's eyes a genuine shot to be the backup next year. I think that's what the decision that they made to sign him reflects. I think that's a big decision in, in the context of DiPietro's future here, and I expect that to be consistent with their approach this offseason. I, I, I don't know that Spencer Martin could play poorly enough to change that, maybe, over the course of this week, so perhaps it's a big week for him, but you know, I think the organization has, has – the die is cast on Vancouver's goaltending situation, and the idea is you have Martin – Who's you know shows up and is a capable NHL backup and helps you hurdle the 3.1 million in dead money on Holtby and Halak next year and the year after you have a, a goaltending platoon for under six million. Hopefully, it's very which efficient, will, which then. will be a yes. bottom ten NHL um, you know cap hit for your goaltending platoon, and you hope that you get ten top ten save percentage performance out of that platoon, and boom, all of a sudden you've got a massive efficiency to lean on. Uh, Dan and Fort St. John text in, the Canucks are making the playoffs for sure. Having Martin make a triumphant return to win out is way too perfect of a story. <laughs> there you go. That's, that's looking on the bright side. I, I love it. it. I can see it. <laughs> Canucks Hour, Sportsnet 650. Welcome back to the Canucks Hour here on Sportsnet 650, your home of the Canucks. Jamie Dodd, Thomas Drantz here with you for another half hour on a Canucks game day, taking on the Seattle Kraken at 7 o'clock tonight. And I should note, Drancer, uh, a little bit of a switch up on the uh, broadcast side of things. Our very own Brendan Batchelor getting the call up to the TV side. So he'll be on the Sportsnet TV broadcast Joey Kenward taking over on the radio side. Very, very excited uh, for Batch to get the call up to TV. He always does a fantastic job. I know he'll crush it there as well. So, Seattle Kraken in town. Final of four meetings tonight. Canucks are 3-0 and against the Kraken this year. And it is interesting to kind of look back to the beginning of the season, Drancer, because the inaugural season for Seattle, it was one of the major storylines, of course, from an NHL perspective, but I really think to a degree from a Canucks perspective as well, right? There was a lot of excitement about the Canucks finally having a geographic rival that that's their own, right? It's not, oh, we're, we're the Flames' biggest rival, but actually, of course, they care 10 times more about beating the Oilers, right? It's not, oh, Minnesota, Northwest Division, like that never really felt all that real. This was a chance to have a legitimate geographic rival 
who was also in on it, right? They like you would be their biggest rival, and they would be your biggest rival. Yeah, for and the first time since Chicago, almost in franchise history, I guess there was some Colorado Vancouver hate too in the early yeah. in the early aughts. But that always felt like it was going to be ephemeral, right? Because eventually teams stop playing in the playoffs and then rivalries die, totally, right? Yeah. If it's not based on geography, this has a chance, and still does, it has a chance to be a kind of permanent rivalry regardless of playoff meetings, regardless of where the teams are at yeah. and all that. Although it'll still be based on the performance of the teams. Yep. You, you know, nothing builds hate like two really great clubs duking it out. And when you get the geographic rivalry and you get the name for it, then it becomes that much more interesting, that much higher stakes. So, you know, one thing I'd say is I think, I think the seeds have been planted this year. I think if the Canucks had started the way they had and the Kraken had been really good or, like, had come out and been a decent team, closer to what we sort of expected them to be prior to the season, which was, you know, offensively limited but Mm -hmm. had good goaltending and a decent defense core and could win some games, I think that would have been really tough to swallow for Canucks fans. I think that would have upped the pressure on this organization early in the year. I I think in some ways Seattle was, like, the foil that never was. And then I would say, you know... Late in the year, like, I think Canucks fans have enjoyed, certainly the hardcores, have enjoyed the Seattle Kraken not having a good year. Considering how it's gone for Vancouver, Boudreaux run aside, like, this has been a disappointing season overall for the Canucks. And I think at least the fact that the Kraken have been bad has brought some joy to Canucks fans. And, you know, I think that if the Kraken are the team, say Vegas wins, you know, at some point during the first period, it's clear that Vegas has won in regulation, so the Canucks are still alive. And the Kraken beat the Canucks tonight. I think there's Seattle fans, hardcore Kraken fans, who will take some joy in having punched out the Vancouver Canucks. I think there's a look. It's it maybe it's thin gruel. I think, but it's still substance. It is. If Seattle, if even if they had Seattle had played the Canucks like last week, when the Canucks had what you know a 15 percent chance maybe of making the playoffs, and they had beat them then. That to me would have felt like a real moment in a rivalry. If the if the Kraken beat the Canucks tonight, I don't know. That's that's not much to hang your hat you're, on. You're telling me you're that's telling not much me, to hang your hat on. You're telling me Canucks fans weren't excited when the Canucks spoiled the home opener, the Kraken home opener. Okay, they were for I was going to sure. say they the, were for the, sure. The the rivalry for this year peaked in that first match. 100%. That felt like there well, was extra heat, there was extra meaning to that game because of the rivalry. The Kraken season peaked there because yeah. they just never were in it. But it could peak now if they're like if the Canucks spoiled their home opener and then the Kraken knocked the Canucks out of the playoffs. I do think the seeds have been sown anyway for something that could grow into into something more meaningful in the event that either team figures it out. I th- I, I genuinely think Canucks fans have enjoyed seeing the Kraken struggle so mightily this season. It's definitely been it's been a real thing, right? And though we got lots of great texts coming in, and keep them coming six fifty six fifty. It's definitely been something that people have taken pleasure in, and also you know having fun with. Uh, the the mess they made of the expansion draft and you know, how they didn't take the most uh, make the most of their opportunities and all of that. Ultimately, what it comes down to, I think, is the Canucks have just had so much, and Canucks fans have had so much else going on that it's been hard to devote too much attention to even enjoying totally. Seattle falling flat on their face, right? And this text comes in: uh, they aren't really rivals yet because neither team has anything for the other to be jealous of. And I think that's a good way of putting it. No, the Canucks have a first line center. A young first-line yeah. center in Elias Pettersson. Kraken don't have anything close to that. I guess Maddie Beneers is interesting, but, like, come on. There's no comp yet. No comp whatsoever. So, that's the, an interesting... Oh, the Kraken also have a 30-goal Jared McCann. 
Would that? Would that? Can I interest anybody in that? Yeah, but it's <laughs> in the absence of team success. Either way, I think it's easy for if you're like if you're a if you're a, if you're a Kraken fan, right? Let, let's say a Kraken fan Sorry, or a Canucks can I, fan. Can I read okay, this text? Yeah, go ahead. I need to. It makes I, this text warms my heart. I love it when any team sucks. <laughs> text in an unsigned texter. So good. I mean, so good. I can get behind that. Yeah, me too. But if you're a Canucks, let's say you have a Canucks fan or a Kraken fan, like getting into an argument at a bar or whatever, right? And the Canucks fan is says, oh, yeah, but we have Elias Pettersson. It's really easy for the Kraken fan to come back with, yeah, but like, what has it got you? It's got you nothing. And and same thing with a, a Kraken fan trying to rub Jared McCann in a Canucks fan's ca- uh, face, right? It's, yeah, but you guys sucked still. So, so who cares? So I get what you're saying, but I still think it comes down to until one of them has – team success, right? Until one of them is actually showing that they're set to be a contender in the Western Conference and a power player, I think it's going to be hard to really feel the heat between the two teams, right? And again, until there's something for uh, the other to be jealous of, as the texter says, on a team-wide level. Uh, Gary the Coward texts in, I'm beyond happy Seattle has sucked this season. I hope they continue to suck. Seattle doesn't deserve nice things. Taking aim at the whole city of Seattle. I don't know wow. about that. Um, the other the other wrinkle here is, um, you know, the biggest story between the two sides this year was Brian Red Hamilton. An incredibly and, and lovely, <laughs> positive, heartwarming, <laughs> like, could sure. not be nicer on all sides. O- yeah. Overshadowing Connor Garland staring down Kraken fans at the first game. Yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, yeah. The, the, there wasn't a lot of heat, but I do think the seeds are sown for something to grow out of it. It's just that both organizations need to get it together. H- have you watched Winning Time, by the way? I, I have not watched Winning Time. I don't know if our uh, listeners know Winning Time. So Winning Time is a, a show about the um, based on a Jeff Perlman book about the rise of the Showtime Los Angeles Lakers and the dynasty that they built in the 1980s, winning five championships across ten years. And, I mean, first of all, the casting is unbelievable. Like, Adrian Brody as Pat Riley is the casting choice I never knew I needed. <laughs> it's so good. It's so good. And so I watched. I started watching it last night, and I ended up watching six episodes. Amazing! Like just like fell Amazing. into a fell into an absolute can't put it down vortex. And the series has taken some shots publicly from some of the uh, characters who are yeah, actually featured. Jer- Jerry life. West, in particular, and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar wrote a scathing review too. And and I can understand that. I know the history well enough too that there's certainly some things that are you know fast and loose, played fast and loose with factually, although you know dramatizing those sorts of things is is classic right like classic hollywood the show is still great i love it i love it so much and there's this scene i want to talk about really quickly because in the big picture this is what i want from the canucks more than anything else like there's no move that i want to see this season there's no anything there's nothing you can tell me that the canucks should do as an individual move that matters more to me than this so the scene is John C. Riley is Dr. Jerry Buss, amazing casting, by the way, sits down with Red Auerbach, the famous victory cigar lighting, um, you know, coach GM, ultimately part owner of the Boston Celtics. And he, you know, says, I, you know, I want to win a championship. Like, I want to build a dynasty like you guys built in Boston. And he's sort of, Red Auerbach, sort of laughing at Jerry Buss, saying, you can't do it. Like, you can't. And he's like, oh, you don't know me. Like, I, you know, I want to I wanna win. I want to win a championship. And the line that Red Auerbach responds with is, Championships aren't won. They're taken from men like me who will rip your heart out and not lose sleep about it just for the chance to raise one more banner. And I'm watching this last night, and that line just stuck with me because, A, it's great. It's such a good yes. line. But, B, 
all I want from this organization, all I want, and all I want for the fans in this market are for the organization to match their desire. Like, I, you know, rip your heart out and not lose an ounce of sleep for the chance to raise one banner. I think that describes most hardcore Canucks fans. All they want <laughs> is one banner before before their dirt nap, right? That's that's it. That's all Canucks fans want. If you've been following this team for 50 years, you know, the fact that both Alberta teams have a cup and, you know, that's the one thing that fans always, oh, you're the team that's never won. Um, the well, only only franchise that's lost two game sevens. The, or the, game one game seven and never won a cup. The other rivalries that you mentioned, right? Chicago, Colorado, those teams both ended up with cups. Right. And the Canucks didn't. Right. And so you're always on the wrong side of every fan argument. I, I mean, it sucks. It's like, a, it's like a curse you live with. And it's a fear you live with. Like a looming fear. You know, in, in hushed tones on bar stools around the city, Canucks fans, I just want to see them win one before. Like, will they do it? You know? That's everything. Yeah, Jordan, Jordan and Langley texted, and that's what Bruins, the Bruins did to the Canucks. 100%. 100%. So, you know, that's what the Bruins did to the Canucks. Yeah, the Boston Connect. No kidding. So, you know, that's it. For Canucks fans, for hardcore Canucks fans, that's it. There's other stuff. There's feeling good. There's having a nice time. There's the fun of the Boudreaux. But at, least, at least it wasn't a death march. Fair. Mm-hmm. Fair. Mm-hmm. All fair. I want a good night out on Saturday. I want an entertaining team. All fair. But at the end of the day... You want to win. You want to take a championship. You want to see this team take one championship in your life. Just one. Just one. And for so long, this club has not conducted themselves with that as the singular focus, right? It's been about the other stuff. And and you can see it. Like, you could see it through the pandemic, right? Winning was not the priority so much as keeping the lights on were. The team dipped down and was a bottom 10 spender in the 2021 season. It cost them a ton of talent. Every single unrestricted free agent walked. Then the instructions change, and it's make the playoffs. And it's not its not like set yourself up. Like, we need to be cost conscious, so let's not worry about this season. Let's do things to have a great year two years down the line when we can fill the building. And last year, it's not like, hey, let's hurdle these bad contracts and just take a year. We'll do our best. Still go get some value, guys. Let's try and make the playoffs. But we're not sacrificing you know, significant futures or Mm -hmm. significant cap flexibility in order to just make the playoffs. In fact, the instructions were the opposite. And for all my criticism of this team and the sort of management decisions that led them here, like one thing I do think is if your instructions are make the playoffs or you're out in late May, well, the moves that followed, the OEL trade, the Halak deal, on and on, make sense. It's not even bad work. It's actually pretty complex, interesting work. Uh, it's just that it was all in service of a goal. Like, the goal was that wrong. Was the instructions were yeah, wrong. You were trying to solve the wrong problem, ultimately. Yeah. Just, just win. Just, just on and on throughout the organization, everything you do. You've got this new-look management group that looks really interesting, right? There's some really smart people brought in, an innovative approach to staffing, uh, you know, high-end competence, high-end hockey experience, up and down this new management group. Will their focus, can their focus, are they permitted to focus solely on marshalling every ounce of brain power, every ounce of resources in the service of winning? Like, that's what I want to see. All I want to see from this organization this summer, more than anything else, it's not about individual moves. It's not about a JT Miller extension or trade. It's not about Brock Besser getting a qualifying offer or being taken to club elected arbitration. It's not about, you know, 
uh, rebuilding the blue line. It's not about adding speed up front or to, or bottom six scoring depth. Like all of that matters. Don't get me wrong, but all of that to me is secondary. What I really want to see, number one, point number one. I want to hear that this organization has heeded Red Auerbach's advice to Jer- <laughs> Dr. Jerry Buss in a fictionalized retelling of the building of the <laughs> Lakers <laughs> dynasty and is focused with sole discipline, singular focus, on taking the championship that the fans in this city deserve and stress about not getting to see one in their lifetime. Uh, Rager texts in, and 650-650, keep getting your thoughts in. Rager texts in, Gillis and Gilman felt like those types that didn't lose an ounce of sleep while they were circumventing the cap, uh, and it feels the same way that Rutherford and Alvin will go about their business. And there is a when you just look at the new makeup of the Canucks front office, I think there are... There's a lot of reason for optimism, and we talked about you know each each new addition that came along. Answer when they were putting this uh, the new look front office together, we talked about it, and we kind of explained those reasons for optimism. But just from from the start, with a, an accomplished, respected guy like Jim Rutherford in charge, I think Patrick Alvine as a rookie GM is really interesting. The assistant general managers, the the outside the box hires that they added. There's there's a lot of reason for optimism in all of that. But it does depend on them having the resources and the support from ownership to go out and do their job to the best of their abilities. And the one, one of the reasons I liked this text from Rager, who mentioned Mike Gillis and Lawrence Gilman, is this ownership does have a track record of allowing really smart, competent hockey executives to do their job. A long time ago, anyway. Yes, but it's still there. It's still a track record, and it's something we haven't seen for a Since. while. But it's, yeah. it, it is... It's also, that worked, okay, ultimately it fell short in Game 7 of the playoffs, but in terms of generating revenue, building the brand of the Canucks, increasing fan engagement, getting fans excited, all of that, that worked really well. That, that was the high watermark for the Canucks as an organization, as a franchise, as an NHL team. So there is a very tangible proof of concept that, hey, if you get the right people in place, if you get the right front office in place, and you're confident in them, and you trust them, and you give them the resources that they need to do their job, that can pay huge, huge dividends. It's it's about non-cap spending. It's about return on investment. It's about investing in facilities and all of the little stuff that separates the haves from the have-nots in this league. About having a disciplined approach and sticking to it. And, you know, like I think a lot about I think a lot about the overall direction as well, right? One thing that I've become increasingly convinced about, Jamie, and I wasn't convinced about this ten years ago, but I think as we've seen the hard cap system play out, as the flat cap era has changed the way I view things a little bit too, even though it's not going to last forever, I hope. Um, you know, In Major League Baseball, you never used to have the salary cap. Now you have a luxury tax. In the NBA, you have a luxury tax. In the NFL, you don't have guaranteed player contracts. The NHL is the only pure... Hard cap. Hard cap, guaranteed deals, efficiency contest structured league. This is the purest efficiency contest league in the world. Period. And that necessitates incredibly difficult decisions. Incredibly difficult decisions. On what players to commit to, on how to allocate resources, on how to structure contracts, on how to take advantage of your resources. It is not a league that's set up for 
old school thinking, even though it's the oldest school culture in terms of management structures and overall values within the league. And you're seeing now sharks in the pond. You are seeing teams accrue durable advantages by approaching things with a really smart understanding of, of how to navigate the cap, right? The Tampa Bay Lightning are the best team at navigating the cap. They're back-to-back Stanley Cup champions. Coincidence? No! Not for a second! And so you look through this league and, and the advantages that have accrued to some of these teams and, like, the parity era that was ushered in at first by the salary cap, that's done. All eight teams in the Eastern Conference are 100-point teams. Look at where the playoff bar is set. Look at the gap between the haves and the have-nots. Look at the seven best teams in this league and the difference in quality just to watch them play versus the 11th and 12th best teams. It's unbelievable. The, the gap between Edmonton and L.A., for example, and Calgary, huge. The gap between Colorado and Dallas, Dallas oh my yeah. goodness, mammoth. And so to climb that hill, to get to the top, is even harder. Is like it's harder than it's ever been. And and one thing I think you need to accept too, and that th- this organization has really, really struggled with. And this is an important one because I don't think I understood this a few years ago. This is a new thing that I'm beginning to think. And I'm not even saying this like I'm right. This is just a theory that I've begun to uh, workshop in my head internally. I'm saying it publicly for the first time. I think in a league set up the way the NHL is, a hard capped league with guaranteed player contracts, I legitimately do not believe anymore that it is possible to build for sustained success. I think there, hmm. are, there, I think there are up cycles and down cycles, and I think you have to lean into both when they hit. I think we now live in a world where you can build for the future or you can build for the present, but you can't really straddle both. And if you do, you get stuck. You get stuck like Philly. You get stuck like Vancouver. You get stuck like Dallas. And those are the organizations you least want to be in that mushy middle forever or, or in the Canucks' case, below that mushy middle forever and striving to get back to it as if it matters, as if those good feelings of just making the playoffs and winning 40 games is enough. That's where you get hosed, hooped, stuck. That's where you never get to take a championship. And, you know, I think one of the big challenges for this organization is to be really realistic about where they're at in terms of guiding their approach to this offseason. But more than that, more than that, if there's one thing I want for our listeners, for all Canucks fans, for, for the friends I grew up with, for, for my family that cares, I just want to see this organization function in alignment with, those, with their priorities, which is win. Just win. Don't reschedule the two games in January for 50% attendance. Just do everything you can to win in every decision you make. Win, period. Take a championship. Shoot for the top, the cup. That's it. As Tanbeer once said. Right? <laughs> we want a cup. He was right. Oh, there you have it. Drancer says, Tambier was right. Uh, speaking <laughs> speaking of teams trying their hardest to win, the Abbotsford Canucks will host their final home regular season game at the Abbotsford Center tonight against a possible playoff opponent in the Bakersfield Condors. The Abbotsford Canucks currently on an eight-game win streak, the longest in franchise history. They're battling to finish third or fourth, which would, of course, allow them to host the entire best-of-three first round of the playoffs at the Abbotsford Centers. You can still get tickets for tonight. They start at $26.35. Go to tickets.abbotsfordcanucks.com. 
NHLCanucks.ca. Of course, the NHL Canucks, they have a game as well tonight against the Seattle Kraken here at Rogers Arena. All-day game day coverage continues with the People Show, Randy Janda, and Israel Fair filling in for Bick Nazar. That's up next. It's the home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650.